So, Lisa, uh, how long have you and Alan been married? Uh, it'll be 32 years this July. And do you remember the date? Yes, the 9th of July, 1988. Really important to remember the date, yes. I, I think, actually. Uh, we've been married 37 years. Uh-huh. On uh, September the 10th, uh-huh. we were married in 1983. Okay, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you kind of celebrate your anniversary? We do, we do. Um, if yeah. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we, we know, we do normally. In the first few years, it was a bit tricky because we were both working really horrible shifts. So we weren't, I think we might have been together for the first one, but yeah. it was a bit touch and go for a few years. Um, I mean, our first anniversary was really memorable because we were on a canal barge. Oh, right. Uh, from, uh, from, I think it was Tewkesbury to Stratford-upon-Avon. And we went, you know, I talked about the gang last week. Yeah. We, we went with the gang. Right, And okay. we had our first anniversary with the gang and on the barge, and we went to see Shakespeare at the theatre there. Uh, but actually, when we got to the 10th anniversary, we started a bit of a tradition. Every five years, every fifth anniversary, we would go away. Started mm-hmm. with a weekend, yeah. and then it extended to about four days and mm-hmm. five days. I think at 25, it extended to two and a half weeks. Oh, lovely. <laughs> so we kind of still try and do that a little bit, yes. mark every, every fifth yes. year in, yeah. in a special way. Yes, well, we, we were away for our 30th, but with family. Right. Um, and uh, and then our silver wedding, we were in Venice with our girls. Wow. So that was really nice. That's good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, no, it's important. It's important to remember. Yeah. And, and uh, I think you should be seeing some photos on your screen. Yeah. Of, of... us both looking... Uh, oh, dear. All four of us looking very young. <laughs> some of us younger than others. <laughs> yeah, I was very young. Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. only just 20. Were you 20? I, yeah. I was 22. When I got married, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a very special day. Caroline was an, uh, still an officer in Girls Brigade then, so when yeah. we left the church, we had this, as you can see, this honour guard of Girls Brigade because uh, her mum ran the company there. So that was a really special and moment. We didn't know that was going to happen, so it was a bit yeah. of a surprise when yeah. we came outside. Oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah. it was lovely. Oh, what was yeah. special about your day? What, what's your um, special memory? Uh, well, I, the, the lead up to it, the week up to it, was very stressful. Um, uh, because I was working on a paediatric ward and we had a meningitis outbreak. Oh. So I had to take uh, lots of uh, prophylactic antibiotics, which made me quite unwell. Oh dear. So I wasn't actually very well on, the, on the <laughs> our day. wedding day. Um, but it was a really lovely day. Really enjoyed it. Um, but um, yeah, I think, I think we were both pretty exhausted by the end of it because Alan had just passed finals and yeah. it was all... Yeah. A bit much really so yeah. being married was a lot better than the wedding <laughs> enjoy being married so um, what do you make of this passage then that we're reading today well it's a tricky one isn't mm. it it's not one that we we want to go to um it's got all sorts of problems uh, with it uh, not least the language uh, that yep. is quite foreign to us really isn't it i i, I kind of almost react against the language of it and mm. and i find it quite difficult to I don't know, to, to connect with it because of that. Yeah. I mean, reading this week, actually, it's a very difficult passage to translate. Yes. And the translations we have in English perhaps don't actually capture the way yes. the, the Greek is written. And I think that's part of the problem, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, plus the fact that I think people think this is a prototype of what yeah. Paul thinks about marriage. And, of course, the bit about marriage is just in the context of how we should all behave yeah. with each other yeah. um, if we're living a life in the spirit. And that does put a very different... Slant yeah. on it, and yeah, because in the following passage he talks about family life, doesn't yeah. he? With children, and then he talks about actually slaves and masters, which, yeah. which was a normal kind of working pattern for so many people yeah. uh, in the church in, in in those days when they had both masters and slaves yes, in, in yeah. the members of the church. So, um, 
and, and I guess mar- I mean marriage has changed tremendously since since the days Paul's yes. writing in the days of the Roman yes, Empire. Absolutely. So. I mean, when when people say to me, "Oh, you know, I think you know it's important to have a good biblical marriage," and I always laugh at that because I think, "Well, what kind of biblical marriage would you like?" Because that's nothing like. Mm. Uh, for a start, you know, that in the Old Testament you could have more than one wife. I don't think that's the kind of biblical marriage we want people Not to be. The kind of thing. No. Have in mind. Um, uh, you know, and people in the in the New Testament very rarely would they get to choose who they were married to. So yeah. the kind of marriages that we have now uh, just don't bear any reflection yeah. on on what Paul was speaking to yeah. uh, at that time. Really. And actually, Paul was was writing in an age when society had taken a much more conservative turn yeah. to marriage because yeah. the Emperor Augusta really clamped down upon marriage relationships, frightened right. of yeah. that uh, the Roman way of life was being undermined. So, yeah. I mean, it, it really was quite strong legislation about yeah. marriage and divorce under Augustus. Yeah. Uh, but but at the heart of it was this fact that the, the husband was almost like the mini god, the mini yes. emperor of his family. He yeah. had the power of life and death yeah. over wife, children, slaves, yeah. the entire house. Well, in fact, I think that, that if you if you got caught in adultery, your husband could uh, legally kill the person you were caught in adultery with. Yeah. He wasn't actually legally allowed to kill you, yes. but your father was. Yes. And um, although they don't think that happened very often, it yeah. certainly did happen sometimes. Yeah. And um, it, one of the emperors did, in fact, carry out that, that yeah. uh, sentence on, yeah. on his children. So, you know, women had, had had a bit of freedom. If you were wealthy Roman woman, you'd had had a bit of freedom, but then that was brought, brought right back. Um, and so, you know, the women that, that Paul is speaking to um, just wouldn't comprehend the kind of freedoms yeah. that, that we enjoy today yeah. um, in some parts of the world. But obviously, in many parts of the world, women are still not... Yeah cherished and no. valued and equal to men so and, and yet you get this other strand coming into this passage you've got this kind of the, the roman view of marriage but you've got this hebrew yeah uh, yeah view of marriage where they paul quotes from this text right from the first chapter of the bible in genesis when mm. it says you know a man will leave his father and mother mm. and, and be joined to his wife and yeah for me, in a society where you know it's all about male headship yeah, and leadership, yeah. that's the opposite I would yeah. have expected yeah. the, the Bible to have said. So you get this hint of a different. Interesting that that's how God sets up marriage yes. to be, and then by the time we get to the New Testament, of course, um, His people have corrupted that yeah. and and made women much more to be a chattel and a yeah. possession. And Moses has reluctantly given them divorce laws that try to protect the woman yeah. and give her some rights. So what God presented to them as a pattern for marriage isn't what they've ended up with by the time Paul's writing. Yeah, yeah. and I guess that's been part of the problem in every culture and yeah. society since, yeah. that we kind of, we re, uh, almost reinvent the pattern of, of yeah. marriage to fit our context and our culture. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Paul, it seems to me, was a, you know, he knew that the Christians were a, a minority within the minority. They were a yeah. small group within the Jewish community, in a yeah. sense. That's how they were viewed. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, he wants to say, well, we're very positive. We're, we're a good influence in society. So yeah. I think he's, he's, he's talking within this Roman ideal of, yeah. of marriage. On the other hand, he wants to bring something very radically different into Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that changes the nature of the relationship yeah. between family life. But he's a bit constrained, I think, by what he wants to say. Well, he is. And I think we're constrained by how people have interpreted this over the years. So mm. um, our view, the church's view of women, has been so... Um, influenced by the teaching of Augustine who had a real problem with women 
And, um, you know, certainly the Catholic Church and, and all of us have had a, a hang-on effect from that, yeah. where women have been treated as dangerous and, and the, the, you know, the sex that leads you into sin. And, and all of that is desperately unhelpful when yeah. we look at this because yeah. we lose the radical nature of what Paul is saying here. Yeah in that actually he's treating women as equals who need to mirror the life of Jesus. Not someone that can experience Jesus through the ministry of their husband, but yeah. someone who can actually live that life for themselves. Yeah. So when he's calling for them to submit, that's an egalitarian mm. proposition. He's saying, you've got to follow Jesus just like yeah. your husband, yeah. which is which liberating. Is liberating and free. And you know, later on in Galatians, in the letter to the Galatians, he talked about everyone being equal yeah. in Christ. Male and female. Yeah. Um, Slave and master. Yeah. Uh, everyone's equal in Christ. And I think that's something we need to bear in mind Definitely. as we think about yeah. what this passage might mean for us today in our culture, in yeah. our understanding yeah. of, of marriage. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think it does have, it definitely has things uh, to say uh, about our relationships. And um, what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to talk to uh, uh, the past, the bit of the passage that um, speaks to the women. Yep. And I think you're going to talk to the bit of the passage that speaks to the men, aren't I you? I am. I'm so, going to try um, to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, one of our many mistakes when, when preachers look at this passage is that they often start at verse 22, which, of course, misses the whole context of, of what Paul is saying here. We desperately need uh, verse 21, which tells us that this whole thing is in the context of us submitting to one another. This is not mm. a one-way street. Um, and therefore, it is imperative that we understand that men and women are called to submit to each other if we're going to mirror how Christ uh, lived out his relationship mm. with us. And so that being understood, uh, we still have a very uncomfortable passage here uh, for liberated and free-thinking women. Um, I find it difficult. You found it difficult. You know, we all find it difficult. But I think it does... Uh, give us some really good uh, advice about how we can make sure that actually our relationships with each other are liberated in the sense that they are like our relationship with Jesus. Um, it is worth pointing out that, of course, part of the reason why it brings us out in a rash is that we've all witnessed or experienced this passage being used as an excuse for domineering and sometimes abusive behaviour. And over the centuries and still today in many parts of the world and on our own doorsteps, this passage has been used to give power to men who would control, frighten, coerce and bully the women in their lives. And we want to say very, very clearly today that that is never acceptable and is a complete distortion uh, of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Secondly, we find it difficult, as we've alluded to, because our understanding of the words uh, is, is slightly hampered by the translation. Um, and so we have images of submission being very, very uh, negative, and that's not what uh, Paul's trying to create here. So the key to understanding why these broken interpretations are wrong is the way that Paul uses Jesus as his key reference point for both submission and headship. He says the, hus the husband is head as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. So this headship is not a kind of lording it over type of headship, as uh, Dave will explore in a minute. And the wife submits in the way that Christ's bride, the church, submits 
to the perfect saviour, Jesus. And we can see how this is a very different understanding, can't we? Submission to someone whose example of headship is a suffering servant is a loving, free and safe thing to do. In fact, it is a courageous and radical thing to do. It is the response of someone who knows their best interests and freedom have been redeemed and championed by the person they are submitting to. So I don't want to build it up too much for you guys that are husbands out there, but this is a high order to live up to. So how do we as godly wives and indeed as men and women who are trying to live godly relationships with one another live a spirit-filled life of submission? And what does that kind of submission look like? Well, I think it'd be helpful just to look at four attributes of that submission. I want to look at love, trust, honour and service. And uh, one of the things you'll notice about all four of those things is that they are things that Jesus encourages every follower of his to do for each other. So please don't switch off at this point if you're not married. This is a message for all of us. Love sounds such a basic thing, doesn't it? Uh, That submission is expressed in love. And yet this should be such a huge part of our relationships. And when we look at some marriages and maybe even our own on a bad day and we hear the way that husbands and wives speak about and to each other, we can see how necessary that command to love is. And to love someone completely means to put their needs before our own. It means that we constantly look for ways to bless them and encourage them. It doesn't mean that we are blind to their faults. But it does mean that we seek to understand and build up before we criticise and tear down. And it means that we long for the men in our lives to be the best version of themselves that they can be and are prepared to risk loving them along that journey. And sometimes that means tough love is required. Mostly, though, it means that the men in our lives need to know that we are in their corner And that cheering them on in an increasingly complex world is part of our role of submission to them and them to us. Trust. Trust is perhaps the greatest gift that we give to any other human being. And as wives, we trust our husbands with our hearts and our bodies. We trust them to love us exclusively and honourably. When we make our marriage vows, that's part of what we're saying. We trust them to share decision-making. And in that particularly vulnerable part of our lives, if we are uh, the partner who's given up work and stayed at home to look after children, we trust them to share uh, the earnings and and the um, material things that come in that time. I often think that actually... Leaving work and staying at home to look after children is one of the bravest, most courageous thing that women do uh, because we give up all sorts of things at that point. Um, And rather than seeing that as a weakness, I think that's a real courage. I think lots of men would find that difficult to lose Mm. that amount of control in their lives. And yet, um, and some some men do it as well. And it is a really courageous thing to do. And we don't value people enough when they're able to make that decision. It's also a very middle-class thing to be able to do. (laughs) And we need to point that out at this point, that it is not in everyone's gift to be able to do that. 
But it is a very vulnerable time in our lives and it takes a lot of trust. But marriages only work if there is trust there. And giving your trust to someone else is, is a way of submitting to them, which is incredibly courageous. Trust means that when we marry them, we love them as they are, but believe that they will change alongside us for the better. Trust is costly and dangerous. But it is the only way to build a good marriage and it is easily broken. And trusting our partners as we trust Jesus, who of course will never hurt us or leave us or misuse our trust, is an act of courage and faith. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it's not for the faint-hearted. Honour. You know, honouring people can be a really fickle business, and you'll have to excuse my cynicism at this point, but as an ex-NHS employee and as a wife and a mother of two more, I am really glad that people are recognising the risks and the costs of working in healthcare and standing out of their front doors and clapping on Thursday nights. But the more cynical part of me would dearly love to see that honouring still happening when people are returning to normal and have to wait for their routine appointment or for their drugs to take home from hospital. Honouring someone is a decision that we make out of love and respect all the time, not just when we feel emotionally gooey about them. And the men we are married to and live in community with in church are living in confusing times. The rules of how to be a man are changing and for many men they are growing up without a father figure or good role models. And we give them an incredible gift as women to all the men in our lives if we choose to honour them for who they are. It is a position that is diametrically opposed to the kind of man-hating and deriding that we see in so much popular culture. And it is a decision that liberates our men to be the men that Jesus is calling them to be. And of course, it needs to be reciprocal. Men need to do that for women too. And lastly, we need to serve. You know, one of the really difficult truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are all called to serve yeah. each other. It is such a surprise, maybe, or maybe not, that this should be the marker of both Christian wives and husbands. Serving those we love is the submission of our own agenda and putting someone else's needs first. So that kind of submissive uh, attitude to each other is at the core of who Jesus calls us to be. It's hard and it takes practice, but it is a true sign of being a follower of Jesus and a sure way to build love in a marriage where it is reciprocated and where it is freely given. It is, of course, a very personal thing about how we serve one another. Acts of service come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, don't they? And uh, if you've done the marriage course, you will have done that very helpful mm. bit about love languages that talks about the way we express our love and service to each other. And we often joke in our marriage that one of Alan's main love languages is bacon. Because if he, I want him to feel loved, then the best thing I can do, or one of the best things I can do, is to make him a cooked breakfast and bring it up to him in bed. It's an act of service that has an enormous effect. And Alan serves me every time, and this happens much more often than the cooked breakfast, I must point out, <laughs> every time he comes down and sorts me out on my computer or makes me a nice drink in the evening. 
All of you will have different things that make you feel loved. But learning how to serve each other is a vital way of living out submission and living in the spirit. So what does this passage have to say to the men then, Dave? Well, I hope they've been listening already because I I did a bit of research on the the web seeing what other people did with this passage. And I came across one sermon where a preacher got up and he is a male preacher. He was going to say, this morning I'm speaking to the wives. Next week, I'm speaking to the husband. So, husband, it's okay this week for you to zone out. <laughs> and I, I thought, what a terrible thing. Husbands, I hope you've been listening to that. If you haven't, rewind the video, listen to it again. But I do want to speak to you uh, now. Now, the role of the husband in this passage is described in very different ways, very different language to, to the role of the wife in a marriage. The husband is the head of the wife. But don't let that go to your head. <laughs> it doesn't take much male pride to do that. Let's, let's be clear about what headship is, is about. Two years into our marriage, Carolyn and I, 35 years ago, went away for what was called a marriage encounter weekend. They still run these weekends. It's a marriage enrichment weekend. It was uh, in a hotel somewhere in Hemel Hempstead. <laughs> I know that sounds so romantic, <laughs> um, but it was a weekend to help us grow stronger in, in our marriage. And I don't remember exactly everything that happened that weekend, but two conversations, one at the start of it and one at the end of it, really have stuck in my mind. The first conversation between myself and Carolyn, we were travelling up from Ealing, where we lived, uh, and we were travelling up to Hemel Hempstead in our car. We'd been married about two years. And the conversation that we had, we, we wondered why we were going. We, we didn't have any problems, we thought. Well, I have to say we were wrong. We did have a few things that we needed to to work through. The early years of marriage are wonderful, but they can be deadly. Deadly for the way that you're going to keep going into the future. Uh, Especially if you set unhealthy patterns in place. Sometimes the patterns we inherit from family and friends that we have grown up with, if we observe their marriages. Sometimes patterns that come because we have wrongly understood this passage. And sadly... That has wrecked many a marriage in the Christian communities through the years, decades, and even centuries. So what does this passage mean? Actually, let me talk about that second conversation, because that happened right at the end of the weekend, on a Sunday afternoon, when we were just having tea together before we went home. And I was sitting next to another one of the husbands on this uh, weekend and at one point he turned to me with a cheeky smile and said to me I like the bit when it says wives should submit to their husbands I cannot repeat on camera what went through my mind at that stage (laughs) but I turned to him and I said but are you willing to die for your wife are you willing to die for your wife And his smile faded, and he quietly said, yes, I think so. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As we'd heard, in Roman society, wives and children could die at the husband or father's hand. And sadly, that is still a danger and a reality for some people in our land too often 
are wives killed by husbands in our society and also around the world. I think we forget how radical what Paul is saying to about the role of husbands in marriage, how countercultural it was when he spoke into the situation that the early church were living in, Roman culture and society. So what might it mean for us today as husbands, as we translate it almost into our lives, into our marriages, into our culture and society? Well, Jesus, just before he died, said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. I have called you friends. This is my command. Love one another. Husbands, marriage is not about you calling the shots, getting your own way, setting the direction of your family life regardless of what others think or feel. Jesus is head over the church, but he is no dictator. That's not how he lived among us. That's not what we read of his life in the Bible. It's not how his spirit works in our lives or in the life of the church. He encouraged, he nurtures, he invites. He seeks to release the potential of every individual and the whole church. That's why he came and died. And sometimes that leads to difficult conversations in our relationship with him as individuals and as a community. Part of that marriage encounter weekend, I do remember, is they taught us rules for arguing. Oh yeah, all couples argue. They're, they're lying if they say otherwise. I know I see couples who've been married for 60 years and they say they've never had a crossword between themselves. I, sorry, I, I somehow doubt that. I especially doubt it when the husband says so. It just means I think they've not been listening for a long time. <laughs> arguing and debate are part of being human. What I do remember about what they taught is that the heart of these rules was developing an ability to listen to one another. Not, not listening to the words, but the meanings, the feelings, the fears, the desires that lead to the words, which the words point to. I do remember the final rule for arguing, and that was hold hands while you argue. I think that speaks to this mutual submission that's at the heart of marriage. Husbands, like Jesus, let go of your life for the sake of building up the life of your wife and your family. Seeking to release all that God has made her and them to be. And that includes listening rather than assuming that, you know, how many films have you seen? How many rom-coms have you been made to watch where at some point in family life there is a crisis when the wife is very unhappy with the husband and the marriage may be about to fall apart and the husband just looks bewildered at them, the wife, the family, and says, but I did it all for you. Maybe. But... Did he ask if that's what they wanted? Did he listen to their needs and desires? Holding hands speaks of another phrase Paul uses in this passage, uh, that the two become one flesh. Now that's a bit of a mystery. 
He even says that. It's a mystery. But maybe it's something we can know through marriage. Two individuals, yes, still, entwined in a way that the church and Christ are entwined and draws us, draws us into this life of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, this life of perfect love. Each one of you must love their wives as he loves himself. That's a phrase that, that has a familiar ring to it, not just in marriage, but in the way we live out our lives amongst each other and in our communities and in the world. Because Jesus used a similar phrase, didn't he? He says, love your neighbour as you love yourself. And he said that that command was like the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Love God with everything you have, offering it all to him. That is at the heart of our relationship with God. That's at the heart of the life of the church. Love your wives with everything you have. If we're going to continue to use this language of headship, which we find in the Bible, we need to be very clear about what it's about. It's not about demanding. It's not about authority. It's not about getting your own way or controlling things or coercion, coercion or you have the final say spiritually over your marriage or family life. If any part of your marriage relationship is like that, stop. Seek help. Too often over the last week, we have heard that during lockdown, both men and women are struggling at being at home with an abusive partner with no way to escape. And sadly, as ministers, all of us, all three of us, we have met marriages where abuse, physical, emotional, financial and sexual, have been a part of the relationship. Predominantly, in our experience, in Christian marriages and families. If this is you, remember in Connect a few weeks ago, there were organisations who could offer you support. Please speak to us and we can point you and put you in touch with those relationships to help you find release, both husband and wives. But I want to end where we began. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is how we work out all our relationships in the church in our families, in our marriages. It's a rule that builds a godly church and shares life with Jesus. And it's a rule that builds a healthy marriage, sharing the love and life of Jesus with one another.